It's 2006. Vince Young and Texas have just shocked USC on their home turf for the Natty. Blu rays just hit the market. And Dick Cheney shot a lawyer on a bird hunt, and no one bats an eye. Yeah, I bet you forgot about that too. But that's not all that's going on. On the other side of the world, a fledgling Iraqi government is trying to gain legitimacy and support after recent elections. And any semblance of national support is tested on a near daily basis. Swelling ranks of insurgent groups aligning with either Sunni or Shia politics continue to escalate their attacks among each other, the Iraqi government, and U.S. forces until it reaches a cacophony of roadside bombs, increasingly complex attacks, and intentional civilian killings. One blaring truth becomes evident through all this violence. These groups do not behave like the enemies U.S. forces have experienced with fighting, and the same can be said in the parallel war in Afghanistan. These groups operate in a decentralized and cell-like structure and assert their strength through extortion, intimidation, and in the best cases, harassment, but more often killing of those that represent opposing sects. U.S. forces find themselves gathering evidence, collecting witnesses, focusing their intelligence and operations on discovering patterns of these cells to discover their members. You might recognize these activities if you'd had any exposure to law enforcement's fight against organized crime or the fight against drug cartels, even from a couple of decent movies. Well, so did military leadership. And in that realization, they determined they were not trained nor equipped to carry out a fight against organized crime. I mean, so what do you do? It turns out, start a new program called LEP, Law Enforcement Professionals, meant to bring experienced career investigators from US law enforcement onto the battlefield to advise military units and commanders in this unique fight. So what could it be like to go from US streets to a country at war? Why would someone who had already had a career even go to a war zone? Today, Mike Davias, who served in the NYPD for an entire career and spent four years in the LEP program, is here to answer those questions and tell his story of how he landed smack dab in the middle of nowhere Afghanistan. Welcome to No Shit, There I Was, a podcast committed to telling the stories you may never otherwise hear. So settle in, kick back, and take it all in. Hello, I'm your host, Joey Snowden. Today I'd like to welcome Mike Davios to the show. Mike and I met in 2010 in a remote valley called Jagatu, Wardak Province, Afghanistan. It was so remote, in fact, that locals would often ask us if we were Russians the first time we visited their villages, which blew my mind. I was very fortunate to have Mike supporting and advising my company as a member of the LEP program. So Mike, please tell about your background. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me on. So I started uh, my career with the New York City Police Department. I did 20 years in the South Bronx. I started uh, eight years in the 42nd Precinct, and then I went to narcotics where I was promoted to detective and finished out my career in 2007. After that, I uh, became director of a security company, had about 300 employees under me. I ran the um, investigative unit, the surveillance unit, the dignitary protection unit for that company. In 2009, I was given the opportunity to go to Afghanistan, the LEP program. I did that program from 2009 to 2013. I've been back in the States since then. I'm now an investigator for AT&T, and I also do federal uh, background investigations for people that need security clearances. 
So that's pretty much my career in a nutshell. That's awesome. Thanks. So let's go back to the beginning. Best place to start, I hear. Why the police? What made you want to be a cop? You know, you probably typically hear that, oh, I grew up wanting to be a cop. And in my case, I was in college. I was an accounting major with a minor in computers. I'm a people person. I realized accounting wasn't going to do it for me. So I, I started taking all the city exams. And lo and behold, the police department called me first. And I, that's actually how I became a police officer. Nice. Nothing grand. <laughs> Tell me about, you know, getting into the, I mean, it's the NYPD. It's probably the most famous police force in the world. What was it like getting into there? And, and what was it like being a cop there? And, and maybe, I don't know, maybe tell me something about what was it like when right. you started. Actually, funny story is I, I still had like two months of college left. I was going to graduate from Manhattan College in the Bronx with my bachelor's degree. So obviously I didn't want to drop out and start the academy, but the police department waits for nobody. So I actually juggled for two months, the academy and finishing up school. But anyway, I go to the academy. Uh, Academy is interesting because you have to walk around out in the street. You know, it looks like a little bus driver outfit with a bag. You have to have your hair cut beyond short. My mustache looked like the Adams family, you know, the short mustache, you know, so you go through this culture change. Uh, it's like the military, not not as intense. So, you know, you get used to people screaming at you and all that. So I do my six months in the academy. Something uh, on the police department is called hooks. If, if you know somebody, you have a hook. Unfortunately, I had no hook. So I was uh, assigned to uh, the, probably the worst precinct in the South Bronx. So 4-2 precinct in the South Bronx. First day on the job, I go to the desk sergeant. It's actually a Sunday. Usually they start the rookies on a Monday. So, you know, the training officers are there and everybody. But in my case, there was no training officer. Sergeant sees a snot-nosed rookie, wants nothing to do with me, tells me, see those guys getting in the car? Go with them. They're going to a detail today. Uh, there was a parade going on somewhere in the Bronx. They take off on me. They don't want a rookie in the car with them. So I make I make my way to that job. Wait, so they just left you? Did you have to go back to the sergeant and ask where it was? They said, find it. And back then, if you remember, this is um, 88 now. There's no uh, Garmin. There's no GPS. And I'm in the South Bronx lost trying to find out where wherever this parade was. So, that yeah, I got to the parade probably like two hours late. And then eventually yeah, I made it back to the precinct at the end of the day. I'm going into the priest and there's a, a drunk on the front steps and he tries to hit me. So I'm ready to hit him back and put him down. And then uh, one of the seasoned cops said, don't hit that guy. That's our mascot. I go, what do you mean that's a mascot? He says, yeah, he's Macho Camacho, our neighborhood drunk. He's our mascot. He's harmless. I said, OK, I'm sorry. I go up to my locker that day to change. The end of my first day, I probably looked like a ghost because I'm like traumatized, <laughs> you know, <laughs> different culture. And one of the officers comes up to me. And I don't know him, of course. And they're actually playing with me. But at the time, I did not know this. And they go, he reads my my name tag. And he goes, your name is Davios? And, you know, a fellow cop, you usually just call him by name. But when you're the brand new guy, you go, sir. Yeah, I go, yes, sir. My name's Davios. And he goes, well, see my name, Figueroa? My name, Figueroa, means God. And your name, Davios, means prick. So remember, I'm God and you're a prick. And he walks away. So that was a very interesting first day I I was still living with my mother at the time. I was 22 years old. I go home. I must have looked like ghost. She goes, you're okay? And I go, I, I think so. But, <laughs> you know, interest, interesting first day. But, you know, I wind up loving the job. I grew to love it. And when you work the real bad areas, you make friends for life. You know, you got each other's back, just like the Army. Right. So, so you're from Brooklyn, right? Originally, I'm actually from Manhattan. 
Okay. And then I, I, bec- I once I became a Bronx cop, I moved out to the Bronx. Okay, okay. So you moved to the Bronx. So <laughs> before you were assigned to the Bronx, how much time had you actually spent in the Bronx? Great question. Probably like five minutes. That's like that's what blows me away about about people from New York City. Like you have these boroughs, and you you may not have ever set foot in one of them. Like you know, most of your life. Like that's wild to me. Absolutely. Um, yep. Eight people that live in the city will tell you each borough is like a different city. Yeah. You, you know, there's 10 million people in this uh, these five boroughs. So yeah, you probably never know. You'll never meet a person if you're in a different borough. So you spent eight total years in the precinct before you became a detective. What are some experiences you had during that time that really made an impact on you? So um, uh, about four years into the job, I was involved in a police shooting. Uh, got a, a call of a, of a man with a gun. I was actually driving a sergeant that day. You know, I wasn't even with my regular partner. And we go to the call and there's people on the street pointing up ahead at a, a convenience store and a gas station it says, the guy in that store is walking down the street, robbing everybody at gunpoint. Looks like, you know, he's high as a kite, you know, on drugs. So, so me and the sergeant go into the store. I see him first. He backs up. He has a gun in his hand. I tell him to drop the gun, but he, he basically says, uh, curses me, raises his gun. And, and I fired one shot and I happened to hit him in the heart. And, you know, now with that comes a you know, if you know New York at all, too, that brings out racial issues. Now it's a white on black thing, which it wasn't, of course. But, you know, so I had to go through. Uh, I don't know if you're if you're familiar with the guy called Al Sharpton. But anyway, I, I got through that. You know, it, it was a, it was a justified shooting. We had the gun toxicology report showed he was um, like on four different drugs. I had we had seven complainants that had been robbed by him. So I got through that. One other thing I like to say before I get into the detective, uh, another thing that stands out on his mind is uh, I had a job once, and this is the one that probably really sticks with me the most. Uh, me and my partner, we get a call, we go to a house, an apartment, and there's a lady there, and her three-month-old infant baby female is bleeding from the vagina area. So we're like, what happened? He said, I go to work every day, and my boyfriend watches the baby. So, you know, obviously we're thinking the worst. We have to go to the hospital. Um, the boyfriend is there, so we, um, he voluntarily comes with us. And then while we're there, they tell us that, yes, he did, um, he did, in fact, rape this baby. And this baby will now grow up never to have children. And by wow. being inside of her, he ripped her apart. They said the baby will never you know, grow up to have kids. So, Wow. How did that impact you? You see somebody who's done something like that. What did that make you feel in that moment, knowing what what that baby was going to experience for the rest of its life and knowing you had that person right in front of you? Oh, what did I want? I would have loved to smash him. Right. But, you know, if I do that, then, you know, I'm in trouble. So I have to keep my cool. We bring him to the precinct. But what it this is a part of. So you always hear people say cops get hardened. I would definitely say this is one of those stories that hardened me where it's, you start bottling your emotions, I guess, you know, you become tougher, you know, people say, ah, you know, you know, nothing seems to bother you anymore. Everything bothers you that like every other human, but you just learn to deal with it. Just like in the military, Joe, you saw a lot of stuff, you know, we, we become hardened. So I would definitely say that was one of those incidents that definitely hardened me. And once I had my daughter, you know, and nobody's going near my kid, you know, you know, when you have these experiences, it makes it even tougher, right? You, you're just going to be so protective. So right. my, my poor daughter, 
probably didn't let her date till about 16, 17, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I, there's so many extremes that you see, you know, with the background, you know, here I was an accounting major just four years earlier, right? And then two stories like that, you know, just it boggles my mind even going back thinking about it. And real quick, Joe, like my first four years on patrol, remember, I'm dealing with homicides. I'm going to scenes, people shot up on the street, suicides, people hung in their in their bedroom for three, like three weeks in the summer. There's maggots all it. So, you know, just to show you that that I can't even hit the tip of my iceberg what I've seen in those 20 years on the job in the South Bronx, you know? Right. I, I mean, can go on, we can go on forever, you know? I'm sure we could. I'm sure yeah. we could. Going back to the shooting just real quick, we're both people who have discharged our, our firearms for our job, but for the military, you know, it's expected. But I can imagine it's different for police. You don't really go into the job thinking, you know, like my job is to actually shoot somebody. Your job is literally about law enforcement. So what was it like for you as a cop going through that and then having to use your firearm and actually shoot someone? Yeah, that's actually a great question. So I'm first of all, you know, Joe, I was going to the shooting range probably every month, practice shooting, at least in the police department, probably shot 100, 200 rounds a month practicing. Never in my life until the day of my shooting, when I actually shot my gun at the shooting, I saw the, um, the smoke from the gunpowder. Just shows you how locked in you get when you're in, like in a firefight for your life, right? Absolutely. It's like, like something I never, and I remember it so vividly now. Common procedure right after shooting, you go to the hospital just to have yourself checked out. I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine. Glad they took me. I think my blood pressure was 200 over 160 at the time. And they say that's actually normal after, you know, something traumatic like that. Makes sense. So, um, also, nothing. We have an internal affairs unit. They come right away, they take your guns. I, you know, I don't like that procedure. It makes you really feel like, what, do you think I did something wrong? You know, but anyway. They take your guns, they investigate for like two weeks, you're put on desk duty, you know, like you said, the press is always involved. So I had, I dreamt about the shooting and like nightmare, like, you know, for like the next year, I vividly had dreams about it. And I'm like, wow, I killed somebody, you know, and all your friends like, hey, Mike, you know, if it, it would have been you if you didn't do it, you know, you feel bad, you feel horrible. But yeah, that it's a life changer, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, talk real quick about Obviously, there is so much out at this point you know, with police and, and with shootings, you know, especially it's it's very, uh, very racially charged. Anytime there's something that happens, is, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding for people knowing what a police officer is trained for, what they're capable of doing as far as escalation of force and knowing when is the right time to, you know, to use their firearm. What, what was that like for you? I mean, obviously... You know, in your situation, person raises raises a, a weapon. Yeah, you know, at, at that point, you have to protect yourself. It is, and you touched on it earlier. I believe the ratio in New York, at least in NYPD, is that like ninety eight percent of officers will never shoot their guns. You know, you'll pull it out all the time on car stops during incidents, but to actually shoot is like less than two percent. I believe is the ratio. You know, I might I might be off a percent or so, but it's a it's about that. So I hate to say this. It's almost to the point now that sometimes I believe officers are now waiting too long to use their gun. They're so terrified they're going to get in tub, trouble and all that. After my shooting, I actually had to go to a grand jury and be cleared of a homicide. Because it's, it's still a homicide. Police or not, it's a homicide. So 
all my friends, I look like a ghost that morning. I'm waiting to go in to testify in a grand jury. And they're going to determine, these 12 people are going to determine my life for the next 20, 30 years. It, it all sounds like good, but when you go into court of law, there's no such thing. We call it what's called a good shooting or a bad shooting. You know, you feel like, all right, he has all the factors there, gun, complainants, this and that. But there's no such thing when you go into a grand jury. You don't know what the people are going to say. So it's like, right. you know, you're terrified because you have no idea how, what the outcome is going to be. And right. it, and it will change your life for the next 20 30 years before you said it i never would have guessed that you would ha you would have had to go through or go in front of a grand jury i think some people when they hear hey well this cop shot somebody they're just going to go back to their job and blah 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 and you know they're not going to be scrutinized or anything like that and it's like that's not and not i didn't all. not I, at I didn't, all true yeah i didn't think that's the case but i didn't know that a cop would have to go through a, an actual hearing with a grand jury and talk about you know, whether it's homicide or manslaughter and, and have to defend right. themselves. Uh, that's, I think that's a higher level of scrutiny than what the normal person would think. Exactly. But after the, um, the shooting, um, I was put into undercover in the precinct. And then eventually that led me to go to the narcotics unit. I'm working in the South Bronx and I did that for 12 years that drugs are everywhere in this country, as everybody knows. But I mean, I believe uh, South Bronx is probably a little higher ratio. So what I did, I did an interesting job there. I did what was called the ghost. So when an undercover goes into a building, he's mic. You know, he has a he has a microphone on. So the sergeant in the car with the the rest of the team is listening to what's going on. You know, with the drug dealer. But um, a lot of times when they step into a building, you lose it. You know, it could be the metal or the door or something frequency. So you always have what's called the ghost on the street. That's in the case it was me and most of these operations where I'm walking up and down the street, keeping an eye on him, seeing what building goes to. And in the middle of the night, there's not a lot of people on the street. So you have to have different acts to, to fit in. So the funny thing I did was I, I had this cane. I would put on dirty old sweatpants I never washed in four years. So they reeked. I, I would make myself look like I'm picking garbage out of the garbage. But obviously, I'm watching the, the undercover. So sometimes they would say, hey, Mike, you know, we don't hear him for four minutes. Go into the building. Make sure he's all right. So, but I love doing this. So I, I stayed there the rest of my career. I did 12 years in narcotics before I retired my, after my 20 years. So what do you do after retirement? Just hang out, drink beer? So as most cops do, too, you know, it doesn't pay the greatest. You do okay, but you need a second job. So I had been working a, a second job for a few years. And the guy really liked me, and I've been I had been doing supervisory jobs for him for like the last three three years, and so he offered me a job as his director of operations. He says, Mike, I like the way you work, you know. So like anybody else that retires, I retired on Friday. I started my new job on Monday. My retirement lasted two days, <laughs> so um, I, I I did that job, and that was. You know, I, I still dealt with a lot of guys that I work with. So I was giving, we either had, uh, you know, security guards with licenses or off-duty retired cops doing uh, jobs that required, you know, weapons like uh, protection details or other stuff like that. So, so what kind of protection details were you pulling? So we would do anywhere from people that were fearful of, like, they, let's say somebody in a job fired somebody and the guy threatened them. Or people carrying a lot larger sums of money every day. Or the interesting ones were, let's say, the sheiks came in from the Middle East for a week. And they would rent the whole whole floor of a hotel. 
they put like a million dollars like monopoly money on the table and they we we had about a 12 man detail watching him and his um the princesses his brides uh you name it we'd w- go around town with them or we did a uh, lot of cheating spousals cases husbands cheating on their wives wives cheating on their we did a lot of surveillance on those wow did you ever have to do vip for anybody like everybody would know or like anybody would know one day I, had, I I actually drove around the rapper 50 Cent, so the, he didn't hire us. The guy that hired us was the one that he rented out his bulletproof limousine to him for the day. So I think it was like a $400,000 limousine because of the bulletproof glass. And he, act, he says, hey, Mike, 50 Cent thinks you're there to protect him. You're there to protect my car. If anything happens, just make sure my car is fine. So anyway... <laughs> <laughs> he comes with his entourage. There's about eight of them. We're driving them around. And he says, hey, I'm going to go check out some real estate in Connecticut. It wind up being Mike Tyson's old house. Apparently, it had sat there for about five years unused. I remember went in with them. All his friends, you know, they're not, you know, they're not thinking about financial. They're thinking, oh, look, they got a club. It has a pool. Oh, we can bring all the women in here. We can, we're going to get over easy, this and that. That was all their push to him, you know? So I remember getting back in the car and he, and he, and he just looked at me and said, you know what? I got no real friends. These people are with me for my money. So that one stuck out. I don't know if you remember the singer Avril Lavigne, like yeah. it worked for her. Sean Paul, Sean Paul's a quick one last quick story. So I'm in Miami doing a surveillance case. Actually, it was a, one of those cheating spousal cases. And I get a call from my boss. Hey, Mike, Sean Paul's bodyguard just canceled for the night. He's going to some the Source Awards, which is apparently a rapper's award. Yeah, it is. You know, we need, um, we need bodyguards. So he says, I need you and another guy. So I go meet him at the hotel, take him there. Now, the next morning, I'm coming back to New York. I was still, um, this was like my, this is when I was doing both jobs, when I was still with the police department. So I had to be back back at the police department like I, I go pat i got a 7 a.m flight he says i need you to do this so i take him to the awards at the awards we're in a back room but he's upset because you know a guy with that stature he should be in his own room they have him in a room with like new aspiring rappers so they're all trying to come up to him and talk to him. he doesn't want to be bothered everybody's smoking weed in there i'm worried because i'm still active on the job i think i'm gonna fail you know the drug test now just from what i'm you're gonna get that in. contact yeah so I'm like, and then he didn't win the award that night, I think. So I, so we went out to a club afterwards, and I'm praying, please get go to back to the hotel because I got to take, thank God, about three thirty four o'clock, he goes back to the hotel and go get my bags, and boom, I make it to back to to New York to go to work in that afternoon. Nice, so you can show up for the uh, for the brief. Exactly. Oh man, that is wild. That's crazy. <laughs> All right, so you spent. How long did you spend with with uh, So let's say skating? between about 23 years between police and and the Brosnan. Brosnan, that right. one I I did that for about nine years, and then I, I I resigned that position when I came to Afghanistan in 2009 in the LEP program. Okay. So I have about 22 years at this point in you know law enforcement and investigations because I started in '87 as a police officer. How did you hear about LEP? Right. So there was a. Uh, there was word going around uh, the our, our the detective union actually was putting out stuff more you know for the retired guys at this point because I know some department lets guys take leave of absence for a year but really NYPD doesn't like to do that so there's a a portal for the the union guy the detective union you know and 
and I remember seeing it there. So at that point, I, I said, oh, let me check, look into this. So that, that's how I first learned about it. And then I, you know, I obviously made some phone calls to the numbers they gave, basically said, we're looking for a commitment of a year. The one thing, though, that like 99% of the guys left at this point was that you're only going to be able to go home two weeks, twice a year. Yeah. So with the LEP program, what what made you look at that and go, yeah, that's something that I definitely want to do, or that's something I think I could do. I mean, because you're looking at your Afghanistan's been going on for almost eight years at this point. It's pretty well documented what it's like there. And you've already gone through one retirement, spent these years in a, you know, a security company. You know, you're in a pretty good position there. So why LEP? Right. I've always been a high strung type of guy. You know, I like adventure, like search warrants and narcotics going through a door. I said, Afghanistan sounds like my kind of thing. I I also think, you know, when, when they push this program, I think they push the right buttons with everybody. They said, you're helping your country, you're helping soldiers. So, you know, with NYPD, honestly, the 12 years of narcotics, I loved my job, but let's be realistic. What am I doing? I'm taking drug dealers maybe off the streets and putting crackheads in jail. Um, you know, here was a chance now to say, help your country, help soldiers. I said, wow, that, that, that that's a great cause. You know, something I think I would be proud of. So that's really what got me. And I think that's got most of the guys. So when you, you know, when we started to train, the first thing is that if you're here for the money, you're here for the wrong reason. And, right. and they were right. And those are the guys that didn't last. On in this program, I think most of the guys would resign, wouldn't do their one-year commitment. I wind up doing four years. There's only like, I think, 10% of guys that did that. Most of the guys, if they lasted a year, that was it. I think only 25% did more than a year in the program over the years. So it, it was something tough. You know, you're going from great living conditions to harsh environments. And like I said, I think the biggest problem was just that you got used to a different lifestyle. Now, these are not young kids. These are guys established in their careers, finished their careers. And it, it's tough to get people to go into this program at that age, I believe. Yeah, I can imagine, you know, you have at that point, you know, your kids are a little bit older. They are already in school and you, you want to be there with them, too. And that's got to be hard. Exactly. So what was it like once you got on the program with the training and getting assigned? OK, so this was the, the great part of it. So when we we all go, we have to do like a, a few weeks training in, in D.C. before they send us, you know, for the military training, for your weapons training and all that. And that's the first question. What are we exactly going to be doing? But they never, they can never answer that. They go, you're going to go out with the unit. You're going to get to know them. You're going to see what they, and you're going to, you're just going to go through it. So of course, nobody liked that answer. But when you go out there, you understand what they're talking about. So uh, I'm just going to go through my experience. So yeah, I, I was actually the first leps that we were embedded in Italy, right? Vicenza, right? So we we went to Italy, four of us. It was so poorly planned. We get there, they have us in a hotel. When we get to the base, nobody knows who we are. Uh, you know, it was the first time the army was using us. So we were supposed to be out there three months, get to to know the unit, train up with them. Well, it gets pushed up. We we're, we're shipping to Afghanistan in three weeks. So not have no idea what to expect. I wind up going to Wardak Province, as you know, Joe Fob Fob Airborne. So I, w I was there as a uniform left. I'm going to explain the differences. So the uniform, I was basically tasked with the unit. And, you know, we, we'd go out on the missions with the, uh, with the uh, soldiers. 
you could do so many different things. Some wanted forensics done, like, or, you know, DNA on missions. Others wanted the guys to do interrog- help with the interrogations, with their police skills with that. So there's so many different things you can do. So me and another guy, Alex Sunye, we were, at that time, two of the younger leps were, I was in my, I believe I was 42 at the time. He was like late 30s. He was from Colleen, Texas, PD. They, they opened up, uh, they said, we need a couple of guys in Syedabad, which was another base. But now we're going into smaller, like, cop areas. So that was a rough area. There was a lot more stuff going on there. But then within a month or so, that's when they said, hey, we need somebody in Jaga, too. And that's when I met you. And so when I was in Airborne, when I was in Syedabad, at least I was sleeping in a cot, in a tent. You know, we had a, ch- a mess hall, right? We had showers. So when I come to that's you, that's high living think, right there. That's high I, yeah, living. I, exactly. I, I was what you guys were there like two days before me only. So what we had yeah. the Hesco walls up and we had tents up, but nothing in them. Joe, I thought I was a tough guy that first night. I went to the tent. None of you guys knew who I really was yet. I went in there and I cried. I'd be honest with you. I, I cried myself to sleep. I said, you know what? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. I thought I was a tough guy. I said. This might not be for me. I don't know if I can hand, handle this. No bathrooms, <laughs> no showers, no food. In fact, remember, you guys are all 20-something whippersnappers. I'm an old man. So I remember the MR, MREs. My blood pressure was going through the, the roof because, you know, the sodium levels in that. It's made for young kids. So I, I was eating, like, rice with the Afghans once a day with vegetables. I, I went from, like, 220 to 180 pounds. I look at those pictures now. I'm like, oh, I need to go back to Afghan. I need to go to Jaga to lose some weight. But anyway, yeah. you're also at like uh, 8,100 feet. You yeah, know, no big deal for 8,200 so, feet. So you know, we had no toilets. Like I, I learned to take two bottles of water. Right, take a shower. Life changing. Life changing. What was happening there? No, there's nothing yeah. like uh, having to pull. <laughs> <laughs> your water out of a well to go yeah. take a shower and to laundry wash your clothes. Remember, my yeah. arms got to work out that did it wasn't our well like 30 feet deep when we had yeah. to pull out those buckets have you ever met anyone else in your life that actually had to use a washboard <laughs> right no i don't i can't say that i have oh man when we had those things like i just remember scrubbing on them i'm like you know i'm probably one of the first members of my family in a couple of generations has actually had to use one of these and let's see if you remember this, because I didn't know what it was till out there. The um, EOD unit from uh, Syedabad drove me out there, and they felt bad for me. So they gave me a, a sun shower. I'm like, what's a sun shower? Oh, you'll learn. You put water in the bag, you leave it in the sun, and they go up to like 100 degrees. Well, if you remember, I became the most popular guy in the base. I remember you knocking a few times, first sergeant knocking. That, that was like golden. It was. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Now, I remember... Yeah. There's a there's a couple of key turning points in Jaga 2. One was getting that computer and phone center. And man, if that thing went down, it was bad times. But the other key turning point was when uh we had General Petraeus visit and he I mean he really expedited two things that were really really big. The first was we got our little eye of Sauron camera, the one that was up on that little, that high tower, because that I specifically lobbied for that with him because with that thing we could see across the entire valley, miles and miles away. And I had had one in Iraq. <clears throat> we actually had a blimp when we were up in Kunar Valley, and this thing you could see further than you could with the blimp, which was crazy. 
The other one was the trailer showers and shitters were morale boosters to the moon. And we were probably in one of the ruggest, toughest areas, right? How many rockets a day were hitting our base? Seven, eight rockets a day? Yeah. I'm screaming at you, Joe, let's kill them all. And Joe, you're a good commander, kept everybody in check. I'm screaming at you there. Everybody else is screaming, but you were disciplined. We needed that. <laughs> now, I remember, uh, yeah, we, we get, we get rockets and mortars every single day. Every yeah, day. And, and we knew where they were coming from, but unfortunately, right, they hide in the collats with the women and children. We yeah. can't fire back. Now, I remember when we, we, we didn't have uh, the phones at first, but when we eventually got phones, <laughs> I'd get on the phone with my wife, and we, I, I don't know if you ever knew this. Let's see, we deployed in late November, early December, and we got married right before that. Uh, we got oh, married wow. November, November 14th, uh, right before I deployed to Afghanistan. And I'd get on the phone with her, you know, and, and she she is very smart. And so she was always watching the news and she's always watching for everything. And we get on the phone and she'd ask, you know, how, how's it going? Hey, it's great. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Exactly. But I never told Rockets her. Rockets in the background. What's that? Yeah. Oh, no, that's nothing. You know. <laughs> well, I always called her at night because they always they always yeah. shot the rockets and the mortars right. during the daytime. So I always sure. called her at night because so, I knew they wouldn't they wouldn't really do anything <laughs> at night. Uh, and, uh, and she'd be like, is everything going OK? Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's like, well, is there anything happening there? Nope. <laughs> nope. It's it's, you know, just normal stuff. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so it's kind of funny so, you're talking about side of bed. Yeah. Like we we come from like fortress where we had showers, yeah. you know, hot meals prepared. It was it, it was very good living for a small company outpost. And then even for us too, it was a pretty pretty big step out into the wilderness. Exactly. So with your unit, I was basically tasked with the NDS. NDS is our equivalent like of FBI, but at a much lower level, as you know, Joe. So just so yeah. your audience knows, that's, don't compare him to the FBI. But anyway, gathering intel with him, seeing if we can, you know, get information. So anyway, um, I just I just remember a couple of things we did there. That was so one day, if you remember, uh, poor one of your soldiers coming out of his um, the tent, he gets shot in the leg, and I know next thing you know, we're on the wall on a firefight, right? Every we were based with like Afghani police and army two on our base. And I remember them leaving the wall. I jump up on the wall to help out because, you know, they abandoned their post, but probably the most famous story I have from time with you. And it actually um, was used as training later on in the LEP program is I remember you had me woken up about 12, one in the morning. Cause you, you had gotten the tip of the, the Taliban commander that had died in a firefight. Uh, they were bringing this coffin by the base to to bury him up in the mountain. And I know there was going to be a big, uh, a lot of Taliban with them. And we stopped that convoy, grabbed them, brought them all in, trying to identify some of the insurgents. And on that one, I actually pulled the body out of the coffin. I did some DNA swabs. I took fingerprints. And within a month, we tied that guy into about 30 IED blasts. So that was actually used for training later on, like even if the guy is dead, but, you know, we were strictly doing it for our forensics. So that yeah. was my t- time at Jagatu. And then my last two years in the program, there was another unit called ISU, Investigative Surveillance Unit. I, on that one, I did Ghazni 
And then I started up the team in Patika province. So basically the ISU unit was um, the uh, LEP was given a, like a 10 to 12 man undercover Afghani police team and train them up in investigations. So in the case, when I went to uh, Paktika, the Polish special forces had gone on a mission like two months earlier on a bad source, on, on a source's information that wound up being bad. And it was a booby trap. And like a third of their special forces team was wiped out. They lost six guys. So when I went to Paktika, they said, Mike, we want you to start up the team here. So what I did was I had each of my team members grab two sources, their sources that they had. Now, these police officers that were signed to my team all had to have at least five to 10 years in the police department, you know, Afghani police department. So they were a little more seasoned. So I told them each, all right, you each get two sources. I said, we're going to pay them very well, but you don't tell them anything. And you have the first source, watch the second. So I had them do a circle. So we had about 15, 20 sources. Within three months, I had that down to six quality sources. The other ones were all, you know, full of shit. And that's what happened on that mission, unfortunately. So once we got it down to the six, they started bringing in the information. Hey, Mike, these are the guys that killed the soldier with the IED blast. These guys are going to attack the base. They have a cache over here, this, that. And I started doing missions with my team. And we also did it with NATO forces. So it wasn't always with the U.S. Sometimes I, you know, I, did, I worked with the Polish forces in an American base. But, you know, they have their own unit command inside the unit. So I worked with everybody, Polish, American. I worked with Hungarians, Italians. So, you know, got to see a lot in the four years. But in that program, what was insane is, you know how, Joe, your units go out, you have four or five MRAPs, four soldiers, a gunner in each thing. I was in a pickup truck with one partner. In this case, it was Billy Payne from Alabama. Big old white boy, right? Me, I, I, I look, I can pass for Muslim just because I have darker skin. I can grow a beard. I can put on a thing. But we're driving in a pickup truck through Afghanistan, through the bazaar, just me and him to our team's safe house or, or wherever. Insane. If you look, I, when I look back, think what we did. Even the bulletproof vest, uh, bulletproof glass on that car would, might stop. It ain't going to stop an RPG probably. On, you nope. know, if we hit an IED, we're done. So it was just insane when you look back at what we did. But what life experience. I mean, my mindset, I came back from there. Nothing ever bothered me again. I really believe that. Four years in Afghanistan. So crazy program. And, you know, I thought the police department, I saw everything that just, you know, ten, tenfold. I really feel that. And it, it, it changed my life, how I look at things, how I appreciate what we have here now. You know, that's a problem here in America, as you know, a lot of people put them, put them in that type of environment. Maybe they will appreciate what they have here. No, I mean, I, th- I think there's I think there's a lot to be said about seeing the way that other people live in the, around the world. And yeah. that really puts in context. Yes. Yes. So. Absolutely. Right. Well, crazy thing, Joe, I just want to add on that is that, as you know, most and I, I did this as a as a contract, as you know, the the contractors usually don't have a great re- reputation with the military, you know, usually just sit on a base. Do this and when people actually realize what the LEP program was about, it was insane. I, I we went out just as much as any soldiers, you know, so it, it really united me with a lot. I I, I have probably like 100 friends from the military that I met that were in the army at the time, you know, my four years there that I'm still good friends with Facebook, talk to them all the time, including you. And yeah, just, yeah, it was, it was a life changer. There's just one quick things I want to point out about LEP and how important it is. When I was a company commander in Afghanistan, I was 27 years old. 
I had been to Iraq for 15 months, which was something. But my experience in, in the world was not much. And I remember on my base, so I was, I was the commander for the base. I had my company of soldiers, which was maybe anywhere from 120 to 130. And on top of that, I had field artillery platoon. I had uh, some other additional attachments for support folks. Then I had a ANA or Afghan National Army company. Yep. I had AMP, the Afghan National Police Force that was there. And then the NDS guys. So all in all, I mean, how, how many folks is that? Is that like yeah. over, over uh, 200? It's, over it's 250? insane. At, at, at the age, at your responsibilities you have is usually something you see like on a 50-year-old CEO, right? Yeah. Point is that that's not a – it's not meant to be like a humble brag or a, you know, a chest-beating no. thing. I was not experienced enough to do that on my own. And I was so fortunate to have someone of your experience and of your knowledge – to be there to go, I know this person's saying this, but that's not, you know, that's not right. Or, or here's what we should be doing in this situation. To have advisors, enablers like you present was critical. Oh, I there's appreciate no, that. There's and no way we the, could have had any of the, you know, even partial part of the success that we had without someone like you there. Well, I appreciate that, Joe. Coming from you, that means a lot. But the one of the biggest things I takeaways I took from there that was I was probably most proud of. You brought a point: the real world experience. If you remember, Joe, one time they brought in that ANA uh, truck that they, all five of the soldiers were dead. The IED blast, they were all cut in half, just in half. And I remember yeah. seeing these kids' faces. But like I tell you, I, I don't want to say lucky because obviously it's, it's, it sounds insensitive. But my point is that I had seen all this before, so I wasn't phased by it. But you, you can see these kids' faces and like, you know, to see something like that for the first time, they needed somebody to talk to. So I took I took a lot of pride in that too, being able to help talk with the young kids. You know, that's why we, when we get back to you know, this was so much more fulfilling for me than the police department. Right, no, that's that's absolutely true. Bringing your experience, you know, was not only really important to me. I, I think it's really important to a lot of the a lot of the folks that were there, and especially you know, right, my guys. So, but and then like a lot of your soldiers, unfortunately. I mean, when I came, you know, I was gone four years, right? So when I came home, even like your young kids, you know, I went through a divorce at, you know, 40, 47, 48 years old. So we, you know, that's another thing. A lot of your kids and then what we have the aftermath, right? Coming back from this, dealing with back to family life, trying to adjust. Like you said, you you spent four years over there and life doesn't stop. And well, that was voluntary too. You know, the, the commitment was for a year, but hey, would you like to re-up? And after the second year, they forced me to take 60 days off. Mike, you got to go, you know, you got to go home for a couple. <laughs> you got to go home, deflate a little. But it became like it was intoxicating to me. The going out there, the firefights, the helping out, this and that. It was like a drug to me, you know. You can't get that back home. I really think you hit on a key point there. Full disclosure, I, a lot of guys in the military have a tough time because you come back into your life, life back home continues without you. You've, you know, if you're married, your wife, she has her own routine with your with their kids now, and 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 everything's functioning that way. And you know, you've got to find your way back into that. And then life and deployment, it's really 
simple. Things are, things are clear and maybe you have to worry about a few bills, but you don't have to worry about that many. You've got your day in day out things that you do and everything is committed to a mission. And then you come back and it's just not there. And all of a sudden all these complications and relationships that you haven't really had to invest in are either carried on without you and you have to find your way back into them or they're completely foreign. You know, coming home, it stuns you, right? Like any, it's, a, it's a punch in the gut. You got to re- reassess, start over again. So actually, when I came home, the first thing I had to do, I, I had injured my knee. I, I actually had some knee surgery. Then about three months after I was home, the wife hits me with the divorce. So I got into a real rut, trying to find a full-time job, coming back now. Wanted to go back out there probably to Afghanistan, but after knee surgery, I needed some time off anyway. And luckily, um, I found a job. Actually, uh, uh, another lep called me and said, "Hey, Mike, AT and T is hiring an investi- you know, investigators," and that got me back on track. It took me about a year, year and a half, to get out of the rut. You know, the depression. Yeah. It, it, like I guess, like everybody else, that could probably relate to it. You know, I hit a dark point in my life. I was hanging out a lot with the fellas, drinking this and that, getting fat, heavy. I'm like. I looked at myself in the mirror one, one day I, I snapped out of it and I said, you know, you got to be the old Mike Davio skip back. You know, you got to psych yourself up and just fight through it. Right. We, we throw, we go through peaks and valleys. So now life is good again. Thank God. Yeah. You can't even explain, but like to this day, I still talk to some of the guys, Hey, you want to go back? You know, when you hear about Siri, you hear this and that, Hey, they're starting the left program on this place. Now I am interested. Let me know. You know, to this day, I, I, I actually always consider it, but you know what, Joe, this is, like what I keep going back to is Afghanistan was a life changer for me. It, it, I think more so that I I really appreciate life now. I appreciate what I have. Like I said, a simple thing, a, a hot shower, a nice toilet seat when I have to go to the bathroom, you know, simple things like that even, right? That everyday people won't understand, but you and I can definitely understand. Crazy yet amazing times. You know, you you don't think you call a war zone amazing, but it was. It really was. No, it truly was. One note I'd like to share is about a book written by some of the brave folks that volunteered to serve in the LUT program that's called Outside the Wire in Blue. If you'd like to hear more incredible stories like this one from both Iraq and Afghanistan, you can buy the book and learn more about the LUT program on their website, OutsideTheWireInBlue.com. Again, that's OutsideTheWireInBlue.com. And if you like what you heard here today... Please consider contributing to keep this podcast going at our website, nstiwpodcast.com. The details on how you can help are located on the donate page. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. We plan to release the next episode in the next few weeks. If you want to be notified, go ahead and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. In the meantime, if you'd like to connect with us, you can visit the website at nstiwpodcast.com or you can connect with the show on Twitter at nstiwpodcast1 or on Instagram at nstiwpodcast where you'll receive additional notifications as well as additional content. On a final note, if you have or know someone who has a story worth telling, please contact us via the website for consideration. Thank you again. Get out there and do something worth telling about.